I think most parents would say that they desired and longed for their kids to worship with them, to fellowship with them. And I was just remembering a little boy when we first came, standing on a seat, and I'd hold him, and we would sing songs and worship. And uh, he's as big as me now. And uh, he's not so keen about putting his arm around me anymore. I don't really care about that. But uh, it's lovely to worship together still. And, uh, and I'm really glad that he loves to be here. And I'm really glad that you're a group, a bunch, a mob of people that, uh, that we want to be in worship with and fellowship with. And, uh, and you've made us incredibly welcome here. And, uh, and for that I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for my family liking coming here, enjoying coming here. And we've grown together profoundly. Um, we've grown into a, a more mature version of ourselves. And, uh, and you've allowed us to do that. You've welcomed us to do that. Uh, sometimes uh, I've pushed you and sometimes you've pushed back. And, uh, and I think that's a healthy thing. So I'm grateful. I thank you. And, uh, you know, Zoe spoke last week about uh, the personal elements of, of this church and about how this church has uh, become part of who we are. And, and that's a genuine thing. And I won't speak to that because she did such a, a good job and I think she said everything that I would like to say. So we are grateful on a personal level and a professional level as well. Uh, I've really had opportunity here. Uh, you gave me a shot um, when I was young and you gave me a shot when I hadn't proven myself and, uh, and I'm really grateful for it. And I was given room uh, and I was given support and encouragement um, and I, I had adversity uh, and we pushed through together and uh, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm very grateful and I'm very thankful uh, for the community that you are and, uh, and I'm very hopeful for uh, who will be here next. And I'm hopeful for um, the love and the treatment that our next pastor will receive here, just as I'm sure, uh, as I'm grateful for the love and appreciation that we have had. So thank you very, very much. I would like to, uh, to share with you my final story here uh, at Bentley. I was doing the dishes at home probably about a month ago, and uh, dishes are horrible things. And I put on a podcast when there's lots of dishes, I put on a podcast, and the thing I was listening to finished... And then another one started to play, uh, and I had my hands in soapy water, and I couldn't stop it, so I just let it, I let it happen. And I was listening to, it ended up being uh, an old Rob Bell podcast, where he was speaking about this parable. He titled his, The Bag of Gold, The Parable of the Bags of Gold. Uh, and I was listening to it, I was doing the dishes, and I thought, that's a wonderful message, and I think that would be something that I would like to leave Bentley with. So... Um, if you have your Bible, please feel free to turn to Matthew 25. If not, it will be all up on the screen. Uh, and I'd like to leave you with this story that Jesus told his people right before it was that he finished uh, his ministry and his life was coming to an end. Uh, this is the story that he wanted his disciples to understand and know. So Matthew 25 is, is towards the end of the book of Matthew, and it's towards the end of Jesus' life, the next chapter in 26, the, the crucifixion narrative begins. The, the end of Jesus' life, the trials and all of the, the horrendous things that are about to begin happen very, very soon. 
So he's wanting his disciples to know and to understand that he is going to be going. And he wants them to know that there's going to be an absence of him. But he wants them to know that there can be a presence of him, even in the absence. So we have to remember and take into account that for Israel, they were a a group of people. They were a nation who were enslaved. So for Israel, Rome was overthrowing them. Rome lived in Israel. Rome was there and and they wanted to be free. But Rome housed them. Rome taxed them. Rome treated them uh, in a way that they were not free. And Israel wanted more than anything else to be free. And so for Israel, they believed they were God's chosen people. They held on to this prophecy that Isaiah gave and others that a Messiah would come and this Messiah would bring freedom. And once this Messiah stepped into his place and in his role, then Israel would become God's chosen people again. And they had a very set idea of what that would look like. And for Israel, they would become the leaders. They would become the head. Uh, At the moment, probably a crude representation, but the best way I can think of is, is Israel are laying down and Rome has their foot on their neck. Rome is in charge of them. They're in power of them. And what Israel desired more than anything else was for that to swap over. Israel wanted to be the ones who were on top. Israel wanted to be going from being bullied to being in control, as most of us do when we feel oppressed and when we feel small. And Jesus is saying to these people, he stepped onto the scene and this miracle-working Messiah, everyone's starting to work out there's something about this man. He picks these 12 disciples from the most un sort of ununderstandable places, fishermen and tax collectors, just the most weird, random people. And he says to them, you are going to be part of this thing that I'm bringing. And they genuinely believed that it would be military. And they genuinely believed that once Jesus stepped into his position and overthrow Rome, that the, that the 12 disciples, they would argue amongst themselves about who would be number one and two and three and four, where they were going to be in this new world order that was coming. And Jesus keeps on telling them, it's not like what you think it's going to be. It's not how you think it's going to be. That is the context for this story. Let's read. The parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold and to another and to another two bags to another one bag each according to his ability then he went on his journey the man had received the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more so the one who had two bags of gold gained two more let's read the last verse together but the man who had received one bag went off dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money Okay, so this is a story, it is a parable. Okay, so in all parables, always the same. We have to work out, first and foremost, who are our characters. So who's our first character? We have the master. The master in the story, what does the story tell us about him? What do we understand about who he is from the data that's been given to us in this story? He is wealthy. This master has an abundance. In modern day terms, this guy is a billionaire. He has an enormous amount of wealth. We don't know where it came from. We don't know how he's got it. We don't know any of that. But we know that he has an enormous amount of wealth. First thing. Second thing. This guy is generous. 
and this guy is trusting. How do we know that? We know that because a billionaire doesn't generally get his lowliest servants and grab three of them and say, I'm about to go on a journey, I'm going on a trip, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a whole heap of my wealth. And while I'm away servants, while I'm away cleaners, while I'm away floor managers, while I'm away people who aren't qualified for this, I'm going to entrust you with this money. And I'm not even going to be here to supervise you. So there's something going on. There's a point that's being made here because most wealthy people and most managers and most business owners are pretty smart people uh, and they don't generally give a whole heap of money to people who aren't qualified or to people who don't really have the background to be able to manage it. We're being told something about the character of the master. He's wealthy, he's generous and he's trusting. Then we've got the five talent guy. So this guy gets five bags of gold or five talents. Then we get two talents. We're not told anything more about them than this. One gets five, one gets two, and one gets one. We're told we're given those, uh, they're given those things due to their abilities, to their, to their capacities, to their talents. So that's what we're told, that, that one of them has a little bit more ability than another and another and another. Okay, so that's our story. They're our characters. I won't read the whole story just because of time, but essentially what happens is five talents goes out and begins to use his capacities and abilities to grow his income. Two talents goes out and does exactly the same thing. These guys, we don't know how, we don't know why, and we don't know what, we do, what they're doing. We can only guess and assume. So you think about a, a poor person or somebody who's a lowly person within this great empire. As they get hold of this money and they take it out, who are they going to draw into their enterprises and their businesses? Chances are they're going to start drawing on the people that they know. So those who are less than start to become a part of and generate within this story. Every time I've heard this uh, sermon preached, and I've done it myself as well, I've tended to use this as a stick. And I've tended to say to people, are you a five-talent person? Are you a two-talent person? Are you a one-talent person? If you're a five-talent person and you're not using your five talents to help the church... No one ever admits they're a one-talent person, but we all know who the one-talent person is in the room, don't we? We don't really. I'd like to think of it in a slightly different way, turn it on its head a little bit. These guys would have gone out and with their talents, with this wealth they were given, the idea was that they start to do what the owner did. They start to generate something. So this wealthy guy has said, here you go. And then these guys get it, and then as they get it, they start, it starts to grow. They start to generate. They start to bring more people in. This inclusion thing starts to grow and grow and grow and grow. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. All of this happens in the absence of the master. The master's not here saying, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you done this? He doesn't even know what's going on. He gives this incredible gift, and then he goes. Remember back to our Genesis story? And Eden was the beginning of order from disorder. There was chaos and disorder. And God made this place Eden. And Eden was this place where they were able to create order. And the idea was that Eden would grow. 
And that order would grow and involvement would grow and inclusion would grow and it would grow, 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 grow. We see in this story they're given this talent and then the master goes and these guys have to grow this thing. More people get involved, more people start to become part of it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and five becomes ten and two becomes four. It's growing, there's an energy to it, there's a vibrancy to it, there's an inclusion to it. We might even say there's a dance, this joining in this inclusion. Inclusion and inclusion and inclusion and inclusion. And then one talent guy, one talent guy grabs his talent, grabs his capacity to draw people in and become part of this circle and become part of this dance, and he digs a hole and he buries it. What has one talent guy just done to this idea of inclusion and generating and being a part of it? It's dead, isn't it? He stopped it dead. It's no longer able to happen. One talent guy has taken this incredible generosity. He's taken this capacity to become involved and grow and he's dug a hole and he's buried it. And what he said is no one else can join in. No one else can be a part of it. I'm stopping it. Done. What does the master say? After a long absence, this is from the message version, after a long absence, the master of the three servants comes back and settled up with them. The one he gave $5,000 showed him that he had doubled his investment. His master commended him. Good work. You did well. From now on, be my partner. So there's this joining together thing. The servant with 2,000 showed he also had doubled his master's investment. His master commented to him, good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. Here we go again. The servant given 1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. I, I was given this, I took it, and we grew it. There was inclusion. Fantastic. Let's be partners. So the, the, the master doesn't say, great, I'm going to take that. Thanks very much. He says, let's be partners. I am going to join in what you have done with what I have given you in my absence. Let's join in and keep this inclusion thing going and going and going. Two, two thousand, same thing. Yes. One thousand says, what does he say about this guy? He says, I know that you have high standards and hate careless ways. You demand the best. You make no allowances for errors. How did he work that out from this story? How did he work that out from the story? Remember, Jesus is telling us a very succinct story with a very important purpose to it. What has this guy done? He has taken this master's generosity. He's taken this master's gift. And yet he is not able to believe that it is good and that it is true. We might say of the one talent guy that he is a cynic. The one talent guy has said it can't be this good. You can't be this good. You can't be this generous. You can't be this kind. It's not true. So I'm going to take this gift of inclusion, this thing that can generate for others, and I'm going to bury it. I'm going to stop it dead in its tracks. 
There is no joy. There is no inclusion. There is no celebration. And that all happens because one talent guy has assumed and guessed that this gift of generosity cannot be real. It cannot be as good as you say that you are. It just can't be real. This guy's hurt, betrayal, whatever has happened to him, has created in him a deep sense of skepticism, a deep sense of pain, a deep sense of sorrow and sadness, and a deep fear of joy. Be careful with your pain. Be careful with your wounds because you can be given an incredible gift. You can be given a a huge, huge fortune and take it and dig a hole and bury it. You might not ever get a fortune and I'm sure you won't, but for you, that fortune could be the love of family. For you, that could be a friend who wants to come alongside you. That could be an opportunity to serve, whatever it might be. And if your pain and your wounds and your hurt and your brokenness remain undealt with, then you will do what the one talent guy did and take this beautiful opportunity to include others and to share in something far bigger than yourself and dig a hole in the ground and bury it. Amen? What does Jesus say? How does the master, sorry, respond to this? It's a bit dark, sorry. His master replied, You wicked, lazy, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. He's not talking about money. He's saying if you had to put it in the bank, at least something would have been happening. Something would have been generating. Something would have been revolving around it. So now he says to him, So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they have, will be, what they have will be taken from them. And throw this worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is strong, strong, strong judgment. That is strong judgment from a master, from a God, whose desire is that we get involved and we get a part of something and that something goes round and round and round and draws more people in. The judgment of God comes on us when, we, when we, our wounds and our brokenness and our cynicism and our fear, when we allow that to stop us from serving, when we allow that to stop us from including others, when we allow that to stop us from growing personally, we can even look collectively, when we, when we allow that to stop us, God's words or the Master's words are judgment. Because what did the servant, what did the one talent guy believe about this master? That he was harsh and harsh and judgmental. So what does the master say? You get what you want. You get what you want. The others experienced exactly the same thing. Their belief about him, their understanding of him was far different. And they got what they wanted. They were blessed and given more and they were celebrated. And the master partnered with them for life. The other guy, one talent guy, said, you are not very good. You are not trustworthy. You are hard and harsh. And so what does the master say? Have it. 
have what you want. Judgment starts now. Judgment happens later when we die. Yep, there is judgment then. But judgment begins now. I believe that judgment is wholly and solely wrapped up in the consequences of our choices. If you as a person allow your brokenness and your hurt and your fear determine you, that will, that will cloud and affect how you see every interaction you have. That will cloud how you see your husband or wife or partner come up to you and engage with you. It will cloud how you engage with your children. It will cloud how you engage with your friends, with your family. It will cloud how you engage with the church. Because if you see the world as the one talent guy did, wherever you go, you will take that. And instead of taking something that draws more people in the dance and draws more people in the fellowship and draws more people in, what you will do is you'll say, nah, this is no good. Let's just keep it exactly as it's been. Nah, people aren't nice. We've got to keep people out. We've got to solidate here. We've got to keep our people here. We've got to do that. We've got to we can do that. And when we do that, those words of judgment are there for us because what will happen is we will end up like this one talent servant. We will end up missing out on something profound and we will end up digging a hole and burying something beautiful. The consequences of our actions are the judgment that God inlays in this freedom that he gives us. So I want to encourage you as a church and I want to I leave this idea with you that you have something very special here. You have something very profound here and I would encourage you to share it. I would encourage you to make decisions that open up and draw more people in, that open yourselves up and draw more people in. I think we have to be very, very conscious to not let our fear and not let our brokenness make the decisions for us. Because I think if we do that as a church, we will end up in something that's small and frightening and scared. And I think that would be a really, really sad thing. Because for us, for you as a church to open and draw more people in, I think will be a profound gift for not only you, but for all those people who don't have spiritual homes, who don't have spiritual families. You're able to draw them in and share with them something profound and special that we have here. So the parable of the talents is a parable about the master's heart. The master gives this gift and leaves. Jesus is about to give them this gift and then he's going to go. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts, but he's going to give them this gift and go. And he's going to say, you can do something even without the master here. And that is still our call today. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And the idea is that we take this, this gift we've been given and we turn it into more. We turn it into greater. And that's the call. And I think that's the challenge from the parable of the talents. Let's pray. Jesus, we are all people who have experienced pain and brokenness and hurt. We are all people who have been betrayed. We are all people who have experienced sorrow and sadness. God, would you give us the capacity, the ability, would you give us the desire to hold those things but not shut our hearts down? Would you help us to remain open? Would you help us to see that there is something bigger and that we can take that something and we can enjoy it, we can share it, and we can see the beautiful 
gift of inclusion that you have given us. I pray for Bentley as a church, that it will be a place of five talents and two talent people, that its leadership will be a place of five talent and two talent leadership, where we will see the bigger picture, where we will be drawn into that bigger picture. And God, I pray and ask that as a congregation, that we will trust the leaders, that we will believe them, and Lord, that we will be able to get behind them and move in the direction that they set for us as a church. God, be with this church, be with these people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, have communion, and we're going to do communion like we do communion on Good Friday. So Zoe and I are going to take the elements, and she's going to 